death is the destiny of every man. All men and women die. All of us have or will feel the pain of bidding farewell to a loved one. Loss is a powerful part of the human experience. And in a way, it binds us all together. For one out of one people die. And nobody knows when their time is going to be up. This year could be your year. This week could be your week. Today could be your day. Happy Easter. Death is certain. But Christianity makes the startling claim that it's not the end. Christians believe that we raise bodily from the dead to live happily ever after with the Lord Jesus Christ. We hold to this strange truth not because it makes us feel better, but because it is what Jesus himself taught and it is what Jesus himself purchased for us. Friends, we believe that Jesus was crucified, dead, buried, and is resurrected. We believe that Jesus lives. And because Jesus lives, if we place our faith in him, we too can look forward to resurrection life together with God. That's the the main idea of our section today. We're going to cover a lot more ground than uh, I'm used to that we are to believe and rise. To believe in the risen one, the Lord Jesus Christ. To put our faith in him so that like him, we can be made completely holy, at peace with God, so that we can look forward to life together with him forevermore. You can see there are two parts there. I kind of tricked you to make it, see it's in bold, make you think that it's a shorter sermon than it is, right? Just two parts, uh, how Jesus got into the grave and basically how he got out, the shock of the resurrection. But there are a million sub points in there in between. Uh, So we're going to be in the text for a minute. We're going to jump all across the book of Mark. We're going to kind of helicopter mostly over those last four chapters, which mark out for us Holy Week in Jesus Christ. Life And so we're going to start in chapter 11, if you want to try to start there with me uh, in your Bibles, and, and I'll try to help you navigate and keep up with me throughout, but I'm, I'm not going to make any promises. Believe and rise is what I want you to walk away with today. Let's pray, and then we'll get started. Speak, Lord. Speak, Lord. Speak. Help us to never cease to find your grace sufficient. Do not allow us to confine our faith to extraordinary occasions, but enable us to acknowledge you in always in the ordinary. Let us not pursue you only for an hour a week, but empower us to practice your presence each moment. Empower us by your word, which you have spoken to us. 
Father, give us ears to hear. Speak, Lord. Speak and cause us to hear and understand. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's consider this question. How does Jesus end up in the grave? It's in large part due to his claims, and it's Jesus' claims that Mark is reiterating when he begins to write his gospel. If you remember when we walked through the gospel of Mark, we often said that Mark believes and writes to the end of making you believe that Jesus is God himself, that he came to absorb the wrath due to us himself in order to reconcile us to himself. Mark's gospel is quick hitting, and it reads a little bit like a series of highlights run on Sports Center. It moves very, very quickly, but in chapter 11, everything slows down. It's as if the brakes have been pushed. Jesus and his disciples have finally made it. 38% of Mark's gospel is consumed in his last four chapters. 38% is made up of just the last week of Jesus' life. This is the point to which Mark has been taking his readers, wherein Jesus enters Jerusalem and reveals himself as Messiah, as the Christ. From the top of the Mount of Olives, Jesus and the disciples can see Jerusalem being filled to the brim with worshipers. And Jesus, knowing he will carry a cross to the place of the skull and be killed by the end of the week, still resolves to enter the city. He commands his disciples to go and bring him a donkey upon which to ride. He does this intentionally. By riding a donkey, he is fulfilling a prophecy by Zechariah long before he came into the world. And he's introducing himself in a way as the Messiah without saying a word. He's entering Jerusalem the way he does to unveil himself as the Messiah King. Jesus, in entering Jerusalem, is provoking the events that will conclude with his death. It's funny because throughout Mark's gospel, uh, Jesus has kind of kept his identity a little bit of a secret. But now he is turning that messianic secret into front page news. And as he rides into the city, the crowd who's heard of his raising of Lazarus from the dead has worked itself up into kind of a, a fever pitch. And they shout at him, or we see how they act in verse 8. Many people spread their clothes on the road, and others spread leafy branches cut from the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven." They're spreading uh, palm branches and cloaks out before Jesus. It's reminiscent of uh, the inauguration of a king. It's how Jehu is brought into the kingship in 2 Kings chapter 9. Hosanna means save, we pray. And so it's quite clear what Mark is trying to tell us here. He's showing us that the Messiah king who saves is entering Jerusalem. But he's not the kind of savior that the Jews or the world expect. He's not going to save his people by conquering the enemy. He's going to save his people by being conquered 
himself for them. Jesus' subtle unveiling of his identity here is preceded by and followed by more explicit teachings of his identity. In chapter 2, he claims the authority to forgive sins, which is something only God can do, as the Pharisees point out to him. And then he reveals his power to forgive sins by telling the paralytic to walk. I mean, I love it. Chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home, he says to a man that cannot walk. And the man responds by, verse 12, chapter 2, Getting up! Immediately he got up, took the mat, and went out in front of everyone. Jesus has the power to forgive sins. This claim is a claim to divinity, a claim to be God. On the Sabbath, Jesus claims to be Lord of the Sabbath. He and his disciples are eating, they're picking some grain, the Pharisees are like, if you're so spiritual, why are you breaking the Sabbath? And Jesus responds by telling them, Chapter 2, verse 27, the Sabbath was not made for man. I'm sorry, man was not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath for man. And then in verse 28, so then the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. He's claiming to be sovereign over the Sabbath. Jesus is saying, I am sovereign over this day. I designed this day. I am the Creator. That's what John affirms at the beginning of his gospel in chapter 1, verse 3. All things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. Jesus claims to be and is limitless in his person, in his power, in his goodness. He also claims to fulfill messianic prophecy. When John the Baptist asks if he is the one to come, Jesus responds by saying in Matthew chapter 11, verses 5 and 6, The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor are told the good news. And blessed is the one who isn't offended by me. In other words, I'm the one that the prophets spoke of. I am the one to come. I am the Messiah. Jesus also accepts the title of Messiah. In Mark 8, Jesus asks the disciples who they think he is, and Peter responds by telling him in chapter 8, verse 29, you are the Messiah. Jesus then affirms his answer and predicts the crucifixion. Then he began to teach them, chapter 8, verse 31, that it was necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and the scribes, to be killed and to rise after three days. After his arrest, Jesus confesses himself as Messiah. Chapter 14, verses 61 through 62. Again, the high priest questioned him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. When you claim to be God and to be the Messiah, and you're saying this to religious leaders, it doesn't bode well for you. It's an offense. His claim to divinity, his claim to be the Messiah is precisely what brings Jesus to the cross. It's not the only thing, though. It's also his cursing of the religious leaders and their system of worship, which they had perverted to their own ends. Look with me at verse 12 of chapter 11. 
Jesus has come in triumphantly, triumphantly entered the city, looked around at the temple, then went back out to Bethany where he was staying. And so they're on their way back into the city again. They're on their way to the temple, he and the disciples. And we read, the next day when they came out of Bethany, Jesus was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in, the leaves, in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Uh, if I can give you a word picture here, maybe an illustration. Jesus and his disciples are on their morning commute into the temple, into Jerusalem. And on the way out, Jesus forgot to grab his Pop-Tart out of the toaster and he left his coffee on the counter. And so he is hungry. Remember, he's not just God. He's also man. But he's hungry. And so as they're on their way, they're headed down the freeway and they see a beautiful sight. If you've ever been hungry on the freeway, you know it's a lovely sight. They see a Krispy Kreme. Hot now sign lit up. And so quickly they do a two-lane shuffle. They exit the highway. They go into the Krispy Kreme. And upon entering, they find... The first time I used this, it was kale, but I, I eat more of that now. So I hate, some, I hate other vegetables more. So instead of donuts, they find cauliflower. It's a terrible development. Places nothing on the inside like it said it would be on the outside. Jesus and the guys get back to their journey without donuts or coffee. They pull out of the parking lot and Jesus says, Curse this Krispy Kreme that lights up the hot now sign and has no donuts but only cauliflower. Let no one ever eat here again. The story is an object lesson. It's a visual parable and a prediction. The fig tree is showing all the signs of having figs, or at least the small beginnings of them, but is in actuality nothing but leaves. There's no fruit. It's all show and no substance. This is precisely the problem with the religion of the Pharisees. Precisely the problem with the temple to which Jesus is headed. All show and no substance. It's precisely the problem with many of us who call ourselves Christians and get dressed up and come to church. All show and no substance. All leaves and no fruit. Trees presenting itself as one thing when in fact it is another. The tree is a hypocrite. It appears to be flourishing but is fruitless. Jesus knows where he is going and what he's about to do, and so he uses the fig tree as a picture of the temple, right? Like the tree, they appear to be flourishing and producing fruit, but they are withering and fruitless. And so in verse 15, Jesus and the disciples arrive, and this is what we read. They came to Jerusalem, and he went into the temple and began to throw out those buying and selling. He overturned the tables of the money changers, and the chairs of those selling doves, and he would not permit anyone to carry goods through the temple. He was teaching them, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of thieves. The chief priests and the scribes heard it and started looking for a way to kill him, for they were afraid of him, because the whole crowd was astonished by 
his teaching. And then if you drop down to verse 20, you'll see that the fig tree that Jesus cursed is withered from the roots up. The reason that Jesus is upset, the reason he curses the fig tree and the temple is because the temple has become a boon for profit rather than a place of worship. The outermost portion of the temple, which is where Jesus would have entered, was to be the court of the Gentiles, the place where the nations were able to come and to seek God. And this place, a place that's supposed to be a place of prayer, had become commercialized, turned into a flea market for livestock and financial trading. Uh, basically, the temple had, what they would do is they had all these temple-approved animals that were, you know, temple-approved blemishless, right? And so people, instead of carrying their own blemishless lambs and sacrifices from wherever they were traveling, it would be a little hard to travel, imagine maybe a wagon, maybe some horses, but carrying all the stuff all the way to Jerusalem, instead of taking their own, they would just buy it once they got to the temple. And inside the temple, there were temple-approved sacrifices. And so what the temple did was they jacked those prices way, way up. You were required to have a temple-approved sacrifice, but it would be sold to them at an exorbitant price. Practice was akin to how movie theaters, theme parks, and sports venues inflate their prices. You've encountered this, right? $8 for a Coke? $6 for some popcorn? It's robbery, right? Jesus says this, this place of prayer, you have turned it into a den of thieves. This place that is supposed to be manifesting God's presence to the world, you have perverted it. It's all show and no substance. And so Jesus pronounces God's judgment on the temple. Not a reformer of the temple, Neither his teaching nor his ministry institutes a program of change and improvement. He is rather the fulfillment and replacement of the temple. Jesus condemns the temple here because his death is about ultimately atoning for humanity's sin. He's the, the true temple. He's the one through whom we come to encounter the presence of God. His death is about to tear the temple curtain and eliminate the need for priests or sacrifices entirely. It's at this point the religious leaders, this is why they're looking to kill him, right? He's saying, what you're doing, you're the religious leaders, but you're doing it all wrong. Religion is not about what you do, but about who you know. And your actions are revealing that you do not know my Father. And so the, the religious leaders are looking at Jesus because, and they're wanting to kill him because he's come to end their religion and replace it with himself. He's upsetting the apple cart of the establishment by proclaiming that following him rather than following the temple and its leaders is the way to salvation. He is saying, if I can paraphrase, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And the religious leaders say to one another, we have to kill him. It's not just Jesus' claims and his condemnations of the religious leaders that take him to the cross, though. It's also his submission to the Father's will. I think his submission to the Father's will, though it's pictured throughout this section of Mark, is best pictured for us in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
It's in chapter 14. You can imagine it. Jesus breathes deep, feels the ground crunch beneath his feet. He's in a place that he knows because he created it and had planned to stand on this very soil before time began. He knew the suffering that waited for him on the other side of his prayers. His heart was pounding against his chest, but he would not run. He would give himself to death. He would resolve to obey the Father. Still, his torment had already begun to weigh him down. He was already being crushed beneath his sorrow. We read of this in verse 32 of chapter 14. Then they came to a place named Gethsemane. And he told his disciples, Sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John with him and began to be deeply distressed and troubled. Then he said to them, I am deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake. He went a little farther and he fell to the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus is trembling. Blood is replacing sweat on his skin. His breath is stopped in his lungs as he considers the cross before him. And so he, he runs to his refuge. He runs to his Father. And he asks, Father, is there any other way? Please, please take this cup from me. Is there another way? Yet not what I will, but what you will. And in response, the Father says, nothing. Jesus hears no response. Heaven is silent. There is no other way. The kiss of death is coming. The misery of the cross is coming. Recently I heard a story of a man who had spent the afternoon at the pool with his family, uh, has, had a number of children, and when you have a lot of kids, you start to do this thing where once you get to the car, you start to count them, you're like, all right, one, two, three, four, five, and then if one's missing, you go, wait a minute, where did, the, where did I leave them? And so upon doing the, the counting routine, uh, he recognized that he had forgotten one of his children back at the pool. And so he, he, he raced back and found, to his horror, his three-year-old son lying unconscious, unconscious at the bottom of the pool. He quickly dove in and snatched him out, began CPR, was able to resuscitate the boy. They got him to the hospital. The hospital kept him for overnight observation. Turned out he was going to be okay. The following morning, though, the man noticed Dozens of small purple blotches, like dozens of tiny bruises around the boy's eyes. He asked the doctor about them. And the doctor said that right before his son lost consciousness at the bottom of the pool, 
He had evidently been screaming so forcefully for his father that the capillaries in his face burst. And here is Jesus, who spoke the worlds into existence, who walked on top of angry waves, calmed the fiercest storms, cast out the vilest demons, healed the gravest diseases, and brought life back to, from the dead, so horrified at something that lies before him that his capillaries burst. His soul is overwhelmed to the point of death. But what had he seen that lies before him that has him so anguished? Aloneness. Utter and total aloneness. Jesus had come to the garden to commune with the Father and find some peace. And there he found instead an eternal coffin gaping open before him. The crucifixion, you see, started long before the nails pierced Jesus' hands. In the garden, God had already begun to turn His face away. In the garden, Jesus cries out, Take this cup from me. Here's nothing. On the cross, He cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He hears nothing. The Father gives no response to His cry. Friends, the worst part of Jesus' suffering was not being betrayed. It was not being deserted by His closest friends. It wasn't being denied by Peter. It wasn't being unjustly condemned. The worst part of Jesus' suffering wasn't being mocked. It wasn't having thorns thrust deeply into His scalp. It wasn't having spit tingle his open wounds. The worst part of Jesus' suffering wasn't having his flesh ripped open by a whip. The worst part of his suffering was not the nails in his hands and in his feet. The worst part of his suffering wasn't the struggle against asphyxiation. Whatever, you can't breathe on the cross. Asphyxiation? That's not the worst part of his suffering. The worst part of Jesus' suffering is his separation from the Father. The worst part of Jesus' suffering is the silence of the Father. Because in the garden, He's already entering into the wages of our sin, which is death and separation from the Father. The Father gives no response to Jesus' cries for help so that He can respond to your cries. Jesus is forsaken so that we can be embraced. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Friends, our sin, our wrongdoing, our rebellion against God has earned us, we've earned death and wrath and punishment. That is what we are owed. Jesus' righteousness has earned the blessing of God. That is what He is owed. And on the cross, Jesus says to all who will repent of their sin and believe in Him, you take my blessing, eternal life together with God. I take your curse, separation from God, under the terrible wrath of God. I will die so that you can live. 
Friends, on the cross, he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. This is good news. Even though all of us deserve the eternal wrath of God, any of us can have life together with God when we turn from our sins and confess Jesus as Lord. Because on the cross, Jesus did in six hours what it would take you and I in eternity to do. Paid for our sins. The cross was the only way for us to be reconciled to God. To the God we were made for. And so Jesus submitted himself to the Father's will. To the cross. So that he could end evil without ending us. The cross wasn't a cosmic accident. It didn't take God by surprise. He wasn't scrambling around. Oh no, they're nailing him to a cross. What am I going to do? No. No, God planned it. Our God chose to love us even though we set ourselves up as his enemies. King Jesus came to earth knowing that we would crown him with thorns instead of gold. The Lord Jesus came to earth knowing that we would hang him as a criminal rather than hail him as king. Jesus chose to lay down his life in submission to the Father's will. John 10.18 No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own. I have the right to lay it down, and I have the right to take it up again. I have received this command from my Father. Jesus gets to the grave by claiming to be the Messiah, by condemning the temple and its leaders, submitting to the Father's will, and having his body carried to the tomb by disciples, some unlikely converts. Look with me at chapter 15, verse 37. Jesus let out a loud cry and breathed his last. Then the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the centurion who was standing opposite him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. There were also women watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Younger, and of Hoses and Salmon. Salome. In Galilee, these women followed him and took care of him. Many other women had come up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, Pilate asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that Jesus was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. This is surprising. The person that asks for the body of Jesus so that he can have a proper burial instead of being left on the cross to rot and be eaten by scavengers and eventually thrown into a mass grave with the rest of those who had been crucified, 
as was the normal pattern. The person that spares Jesus' body from this degradation is not Peter, it's not John, it's not one of the twelve, but a prominent member of the Sanhedrin, the group that had worked to put Jesus to death. It's a man named Joseph of Arimathea, who we learn elsewhere is looking for the kingdom of God. It's a man who had become a secret disciple of Jesus, but whose faith had now been made public. He, along with Nicodemus, who John 19 informs us is another unlikely convert, lays Jesus' body to rest. Joseph, by requesting Jesus' body, and Nicodemus, by helping prepare Jesus' body for burial, reveal themselves to be followers of Jesus. Here's the point. There's all kinds of application here, but you can think about that later. The point is that Jesus has people everywhere. He has all kinds of people in all kinds of places. Jesus has disciples all over the world. In America, in the Congo, in South America, in Europe. He has disciples among ISIS right now. Jesus has people everywhere. He saves whom He wills. And He does not fail. Also notice here that Jesus is clearly dead, right? Joseph and Nicodemus are not expecting a resurrection. And they're not at home eating chocolate, sipping wine by the fire, smiling and quipping to one another, won't it be great when Jesus rises and everybody is so shocked? No. They're wrapping his body in a linen cloth along with spices. They're making sure he doesn't stink as much as his body decays. They're burying Jesus because they believe he's going to stay dead. And the fact that Jesus is dead seems clear enough, but it's important to mark out that Mark has gone to great lengths to make sure everybody understands that Jesus is dead. Keller comments, the way Mark reports the burial is significant. He's certifying that Jesus was really dead. Joseph of Arimathea is named here as an identified witness who actually had Jesus' body wrapped up and sealed in a tomb. A Roman centurion, who would be an expert in death, bore witness of Jesus' death to Pilate, who would be a legal authority on the matter. Finally, in verse 47, we have women as eyewitnesses to the burial. So multiple experts and multiple witnesses prove that Jesus really was dead. If you ever read this on your own, you'll notice he names these women over and over and over again. And that's kind of an ancient footnote. He's saying, ask these women. They were there. This really happened. It's history. No one is expecting a resurrection, which is why we see the women going to visit Jesus' grave with their heads hung and their hearts wrung out. Verse 1 of chapter 16. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll the stone away for us from the entrance of the tomb? So you can see it there. Early in the morning, these three women are on their way to anoint Jesus' body. I mean, they're not in good spirits. They're not going, Oh, how exciting, the first Easter. They're not going, He is risen. Yes, He is risen indeed. No, they are sad. They are in mourning on this morning. They are as excited to go to the tomb of Jesus as you were to go to your first family funeral. They think he is dead. There is gloom in the air. 
Verse 4, and looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right, dressed in lightning. And they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go. Tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Thus ends Mark's gospel. I will, if you want to go back and listen to my sermon on this chapter, it deals with the textual critical issues here. But this is the last verse of Mark's gospel. The rest of the verses you can think of like an appendix that were there. It was helpful early on. The rest of that you'll have to go back and listen or, or get me after. Don't have the time for it. Here's the point. They are afraid. Obviously, they told someone because otherwise, if they didn't tell anybody, how would, they, how would Mark know to write down that they didn't tell anybody? Anyhow, they, they told them. The message eventually comes forth from their lips as Peter dictates this gospel to Mark. But here's the point. They go away afraid because they're not expecting a resurrection. It's surprising. Jesus is not there. He's risen. Jesus is alive. They are astonished and they flee the tomb. It's impossible. These women are confronted with the resurrection of Jesus and with his identity as God. And so they do what people do throughout Mark when they recognize Jesus is the God-man. They respond with fear. Every time Jesus does something miraculous in the Gospel of Mark, the people are seized with fear and astonishment. Jesus stills the storm and the disciples fall on their faces afraid and say, who then is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? He heals the demoniac and the people there beg him to leave their land. He raises the dead and people are filled with astonishment. Over and over again, every time deity bursts forth from Jesus in this gospel, people are not rejoicing, they are trembling. And here is the greatest miracle of all. He rises from the dead, and these ladies are afraid and astonished. They're frightened, but they've got a message. They've got a promise, and they eventually share that message and share that promise. The message these women eventually will tell others is that the tomb is empty and the throne is occupied. The resurrection of Jesus is His final guarantee of His faithfulness. He he didn't just come to die. He came also to resurrect Jesus came to roll back all the effects of evil until his kingdom is ultimately brought in its fullness. Jesus' resurrection begins the great reversal of all evil. It points us to his final triumph over sin and over suffering. That's why we look forward to his return and our resurrection with a feverish expectation. Jesus is 
redeeming everything that has been broken. I mean, ordinary life is what's going to be redeemed. There's nothing better than ordinary life when it's not marred by sin. Ordinary life is, is food and work and chairs by the fire and dancing and music and mountains and sports and all of these things are going to be made new. They're going to be redeemed. This world that God loves so much, this is the world that he loves so much that he gave his only son so that we and the rest of this ordinary world that he created could be redeemed. This is what he's making perfect. Creation, along with us, groans for redemption. And that's just what is in store when Christ returns. Life that is lived happily ever after is what God has made us for. It's what he's promised and procured for all who will turn from their sin and put their faith in him. The resurrection validates Jesus and it forces us to respond to him. Mark wants us to draw the conclusion that he argues for from the very first verse of this gospel. He wants us to understand that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that that's good news for us. I love how one former agnostic put it. He says, as a historian, I sought out to unearth the truth about Jesus and kept tripping over the resurrection until I finally realized it happened. It's true. Friends, Christianity is true. Jesus really did rise from the dead. He was no messianic pretender. History has had plenty and forgotten plenty of those. And had Jesus been a pretender, he would have found himself in the tomb of the forgotten. But he burst forth from that tomb by rising from the dead. The resurrection is of supreme and eternal importance. It is the hinge upon which the world pivots. It's the hinge upon which the story of your life pivots. I implore you to turn from your self-trust, from your sin, and to believe in Jesus. There, there's grace for you. Anyone can be a disciple of Jesus. A Gentile centurion, a Jewish religious leader, a group of marginalized women, even a defunct disciple like Peter. Don't miss the note of grace in verse 7. Tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Peter singled out because of his denial. Seems that Jesus anticipates Peter's need to know that he loves him. Be easy for Peter to get down on himself. Jesus could never love me. I denied him three times. I failed him. But that's not, that's not how Jesus works. He tells the angel to tell Peter that he's risen. There's no rebuke, there's no distance, there's no grudge, only a loving invitation. Only grace. Friends, anyone can be a disciple. Anyone can receive grace. Will you? Death is the destiny of every man and every woman. But so too is resurrection. 
Some will be raised to bend the knee to King Jesus in terror as they reap the harvest of their chosen and continued rebellion. Whereas others will raise to delight in eating and drinking at the king's table as they reap the harvest of discipleship. The question is, will judgment day, will the end of all things, will eternity find you with a mouthful of wine and steak or a mouthful of ashes? Will your ending be awful? Will your ending be hell? Or will it be heaven? Jesus has guaranteed a happy ending to all who will put their faith in him. The gospel is no fiction, my friends. But it is bringing about the happily ever after for all those who confess Jesus as Lord. Believe in him and rise to the newness of life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that we can, especially on this day, celebrate your victory over death and over evil. We acknowledge that we are evil, that we are sinners, that we deserve death, and that the only way you could possibly have ended evil without ending us was the cross. And that, Lord Jesus, you went for us. You went to the cross to free us from condemnation, to free us from the wages of our sin, to free us from our slavery to the tyranny of the world, to free us from our need of affirmation. Because you've given us all the affirmation we need. We are free from death. Oh, Lord, you have given us so much. We rejoice in you not only on this Sunday, but every day. Because your resurrection life, we get to experience a part of it even now. Living life in union with you is what we were made for. We rejoice that you have given us grace so that we might know you. That is our only boast. You alone, our Lord Jesus Christ, who has made us righteous. Thank you. Thank you. It is in your name that we pray. Amen.